Welcome, friends, to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all Bible-loving creatures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we are bringing you preaching tips on a classic text, Exodus 3, 1-15, the burning bush revelation. And I'm really having to not make a joke about how hot our conversation is going to be right now. So you're just going to have to take that out. (laughs) This passage, I do apologize, dear listeners, is the first reading scheduled for August 30th, 2020. And this week, we are thrilled to have a special guest with us. We sure are. Joining us today on the podcast is Reverend Dr. Deborah Mumford, who is a professor of homiletics at Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, which happens to be my own alma mater. And Deborah happens to have been my own homiletics professor and my academic advisor during my master's degree. Yes, indeed. <laughs> she is an ordained American Baptist minister and has served in several church ministry contexts. Her academic work has centered around the topics of African-American prophetic preaching, prosperity preaching, eschatology and the reign of God, and the intersections between preaching and health. And as of this summer, Dr. Mumford has been installed as the new academic dean at Louisville Seminary. Her latest book from Judson Press is titled Envisioning the Reign of God, Preaching for Tomorrow. And it's all about making eschatology practical for preachers and congregations. So we'll put up links to her work on our website so you all can find it and soak it in. Deborah, it's so good to have you with us. Welcome to First Reading. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, this is this has kind of become a theme question that we've started asking people just because we find ourselves in such an odd situation these days with the pandemic and some sort of social distancing or quarantining. What's kept you sane in the midst of all of this? Well, like I have I have a, a, a wonderful partner who keeps me grounded in all things. So she keeps me. <laughs> keeps me in the line. So I appreciate that. Um, but one of the things that we, we've tried to do is to is to make sure we, we get out periodically and actually, you know, go for walks and and stay connected to people we really care about, checking in on them. Um, and so all of that has been helpful. And uh, on weekends, binge watching our favorite shows helps immensely. So, <laughs> so that's uh, that's been that's been uh, that's been fun too. Yes, a highly effective strategy. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and and one more, and cooking. Yeah. 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 So be getting creative about cooking since we can't, you know, we haven't been going out to eat. So it's like, well, let's do some creative things in the kitchen. So that's so. Good. So what's the most adventurous thing you've tried? Um, the most adventuresome uh, has probably been some of the cocktails that, that we've made. Like an uh, that's my kind of cooking. <laughs> so going back into the kitchen, like a Mineola martini was a favorite. Uh, oh, cool! Creation. So nice. Yeah, so that's been fun. Pairs Excellent. nicely with Netflix binging, right? Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> So, Deborah, uh, even though you have so many professional accomplishments and accolades, it's obvious, I'm sure, that today is a crowning achievement because you have the great distinction of being the very first professional homiletician that we've had as a guest on our podcast. I am honored. So, congratulations. Thank you. 
Uh, and we are very excited to glean from your expertise on preaching, especially since we're looking at a lectionary text that's probably already familiar, or at least in, in its outline, to lots of preachers and congregations. I can imagine some sort of been there, done that attitudes towards this particular text. So uh, let's see together how we can give some fresh insights to our listeners. Uh, but first things first, Deborah, could you do the first reading for us in English? I can do that. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be reading uh, from the New International Version. Great. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, a priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire within the bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said to him, I am God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship. God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Thank you. No wonder it's such a famous passage, right? This is, there's a lot going on here. There is a lot going on in this text. 
And it's just fun to hear again. I mean, it's one of those stories that I feel like I never get sick of, no matter how, you know, it's just good to hear. So can you can you kind of set the literary context for us? Where are we in in the midst of the Exodus narrative when this moment happens? So when we come to this part, what we've we find out a few things. So at the beginning, we have an attempted genocide by Pharaoh. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was thwarted by a couple of the midwives who, who decided they wanted to uh, obey God rather than Pharaoh, so which is which is super. Uh, and then we come to the story of Moses and his birth and his rescue, and his also committing one of the the premier crimes, uh, you know, in the Bible. He saw one of his Hebrew brethren being beaten and he intervened and actually killed someone and then fled for fear of uh, prosecution. So by the time we get to this text, what we have, we have gotten to know who Moses is. We understand why uh, he has been on the lamb. One of the things when we come into this story is that Moses is uh, taking care of the flock, doing what he does every day. And then he looks over and sees this bush that's on fire, that's not being consumed. And when I read this over again, uh, one of the first questions is, why did God think that in order to get Moses' attention, he had to do something so spectacular, like set something on fire. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's like, wow. So is there no other way uh, to get Moses's attention? Uh, mm-hmm. So to me, that says more about Moses um, than <laughs> maybe about God. Uh, <laughs> that's, way, awesome. that's, that's kind of a running theme with God and Moses, right? Like yeah. Moses is always needing some sort of powerful confirmation that, yeah. that this is all real. Right. So, you know, some folk, if you kind of think they, they they can hear the voice of God, they can hear God calling like Samuel, for instance, you know, later uh, in the Bible, he hears God and he answers. But Moses needs, you know, fire. So, um, so again, that that segues into our circumstance in which we find ourselves today. Are there things happening in our world where God is calling us to pay attention? Not saying that these circumstances were caused by God, but with their presence, should we be paying attention? Is there something that we need to learn from these things? Hmm. Uh, and I definitely think think so. If you kind of think about the pandemic, it, it brings attention to the inequities that are in, in society and they are being... Uh, um, exposed in ways that many people have not understood before. People experiencing some of the inequities, they know, right? So it's been like Mm -hmm. that for a long time. But for others, it's like, wow, so didn't know um, why uh, Black and brown people were being disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So if you're already poor and victims of, you know, white supremacy, all of this, is going to show itself even more in a pandemic. 
I, I love that idea too of like there being a whole sort of backstory here of the interaction between Moses and God that the the physical reality of the burning bush kind of hints at, you know, like what other ways had God tried to get Moses' attention right. that just didn't work? And so didn't this, work. Was Finally, the, this was the 14th thing that God had right. tried. Finally God's like, okay, just set something on right. fire. It's like, okay, this, surely this yeah. will work. And yeah. and really wonderfully, then Moses finally gives the response of Samuel, you know, the here I am, which is finally that he's ready to see and then, of course, to listen as well. So, right. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can talk for a little bit just uh, as we keep kind of working through an exegesis of the passage here, um, just the way that God is characterized in this passage uh, as I was reading through, I noticed there was lots of language, especially in, in verses four to eight, about God uh, perceiving things. You have God seeing the suffering of the people, of hearing about what was going on, of knowing it. And, and then God responds to all of that. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, you have the God who is doing this spectacular thing like setting a bush on fire there's an angel you know there and but then you also have a god who is sensitive enough to see oppression and not just see it but to intervene in the oppression and to set in in course a strategy for alleviating the oppression so the god that we see here is the kind of God that people who are oppressed, it's like, you know, that's the kind of God they want to know Mm -hmm. that God sees and hears and knows. And not only that, but is going to take action um, to deliver them from their oppressor. That's one of the reasons why in a lot of African-American churches, it is an important text Mm -hmm. for people to know. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, so the God that we say we serve is not the kind of God who is unaffected by our circumstances and is not only that, but will intervene in our circumstances for our benefit. I love I love the way, too, you phrase that as the term of like um, senses, the thing that God senses here, because it almost seems like there's this juxtaposition between a fiery bush, which would hurt our physical senses. You know, it would be too hot. It would consume us. You know, it would be painful. And yet it's not for God. But what does affect God's senses of sight and hearing in this is the suffering of the people. It's almost like there's this juxtaposition between what's, you know, what's burning up God is this suffering of the people. When you talk about the kind of God that this text represents there's also some tension there between mm. the kind of God who is so deeply affected by people's suffering, and yet the solution to that is to bring them to this land that's occupied by other people and right. will require violence to establish them. <laughs> right. So, you know, again, so it's like on the one hand, we have like this this God who is like, this is awesome God, yeah. right? So God who is attending to the needs of the people. Great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but then the recommendation, the solution, is to take these people from one land to another. And in order to, and what the people don't know then, of course, is that in order to uh, act, 
actually be the new owners of this land flowing with milk and honey, they have to fight mm-hmm. and kill entire people. The the Amorites, the Hittites, you know, that long list of names, they're going to have to annihilate, commit genocide yeah. on all of these people as suggested by this sensitive, loving <laughs> God. Right. So it's like, yeah. what what is what is going on with that? So it, it, it seems like so we have a God in the, the picture here is a God who is concerned about one people. Mm-hmm. but not about the others. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, if this is creating God, God who created all, why is God not concerned about the Hittites and the Amorites, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it, it is a major contradiction. And I think you should, we should preach it just the way it is mm-hmm. with all of its stunning contradiction. Because that stunning contradiction uh, that we find in the text uh, is just an example of some of the contradictions we experience in our world. Mm. Because there are policies and, you know, things put in place that seem to be more concerned for some people Mm. than for others. Right. And so for us to kind of unearth that in the Bible and to talk about that Mm -hmm. uh, and but then to also use our critical theological lens when we are looking at the situations and circumstances in our world. It, it, it just makes, makes sense. Um, and, and so to me, this is a divine invitation for critique um, mm-hmm. and uh, to, to look at this text and the world with a hermeneutic of suspicion and to um, to kind of learn from it. So that's really that's really fascinating. I think um, we sometimes phrase these as preaching pitfalls. Maybe a pitfall would be to ignore that part of the yes. text yes. and just preach the part that makes us feel so good. But you're suggesting that we should we should include all of this, lean into and co- it, and comment on it as as how this reflects our own experience in our own world as well. Exactly. I think for so long, we we want to avoid texts that are uncomfortable. But we live in a world where the, the contradictions are uh, tremendous and replete. I mean, we have, we have no shortage of contradictions in our world. So why not lean into the contradictions of the biblical text as a way of fostering discussion about contradictions in our world? The very fact that it's in the Bible is your words were a divine invitation of critique. You know, that's that's powerful right there. Pastors, if you if you do preach that, though, you might have to be wary. <laughs> You're also inviting your people in some ways to a pastoral invitation of critique, which could be a really good thing, too, but also maybe not super comfortable. Yeah, but it's true. what a powerful invitation that would be, too. Now, there's a big chunk of this text that is all about kind of the self-revelation of God to Moses. How does God's self-revelation here, including the naming of God, play a part in in this story? What's it doing here? It seems like the naming of God is, I don't know, maybe shouldn't say, you know, the icing on the cake, but it all, everything kind of flows 
all the way to it's like, okay, so I'm giving you an idea of, of, of my power. You, you, you see that on display with the burning bush and the angel. Uh, you're standing on holy ground. So I'm kind of setting this, you know, the stage for your, 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 your interaction with me. And I'm also giving you a name for you to, to call me. So all of these things culminate to me as a way of, of, of Moses recognizing and understanding who God is. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I, the, on the one hand, it's kind of backwards from the way we're used to doing things, because it's like, hello, nice to meet you, my name is, right. you know? Yeah. And, and instead, the giving of the name is like a culminating moment in this experience with God, even though the conversation doesn't end there, I guess. Yeah, and in a way, it's it's asking for another level of intimacy there, right? right. Like a, a deeper connection. I've I've experienced you, I've encountered you, but I want to know who you are. Right. And, and that's, and it does, it kind of culminates there in those last few verses, you know, what just sort of as a side, a side question, sort of a little homiletical edge here we have in this text, uh, in, in sort of the lead up with all of the stuff, but then in verse 15, the giving of that divine name, which is kind of momentous in this, in this passage, um, but it's not without difficulty for preachers, especially since the uh, the practice of sort of vocalizing out loud the name of God is a sensitive issue in Jewish circles. Uh, what's what's sort of your advice for preachers in handling a passage like this, which talks about the name of God in a way that's sensitive to our Jewish neighbors? Um, I mean, you always try to try to let people know um and I think in, in, a, in a lot of a lot of churches, we don't really give people any um, kind of background or any kind of understanding of the differences in, in culture and the way people identify uh, with God. So just kind of letting people know of the tradition of not saying God's name uh, out loud, um, I think is is important. But I think in a lot of churches, they really, you know, they'll acknowledge that. But it's like, OK, so so what can we say? Uh, mm. How can we relate to God? How should we say God's name? And I know in a lot of African-American traditions, um, people like to have like a whole an array of different ways to, right. to kind of talk about God. Uh, and, uh, you know, Rose of Sharon, and they go throughout, you know, the, the, the whole Bible and just the, how many ways can we talk about, you know, God is my rock, uh, and my mm-hmm. redeemer. Uh, and so thinking about just the different ways that we relate to God and why we do that, mm-hmm. I think is important. We can respect that, uh, while also leaning into our own traditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, since we've got you here, maybe we can delve into a few more homiletical issues here, Mm -hmm. since that's your field and not ours professionally. Mm -hmm. This is kind of related to that that question. This is a a, central story in the the Jewish tradition of their liberation and um, really formation as a people, the whole Exodus story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it also has resonances in other communities beyond the Jewish community. Um, as a preacher, 
Um, how, do, how, how would you recommend handling that uh, in a way that sort of lays claim to it as our story, but also acknowledges that this isn't our story only? What would you have to say about that? Well, I think, I think it's really important to, to always uh, put everything in context, uh, because if we lose the context of the text itself, uh, what was happening in the lives of the, the Israelites at this time, how even people today uh, in some Jewish communities relate to this text. If we lose that context and lay claim to only our interpretation of that context, I don't think we actually are doing the text justice. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't want to be supersessionist uh, in our interpretations of the text. Just a quick note for our listeners, um, supersessionism is the idea that Christians have replaced Jews as God's chosen people. And it's a it's a bad thing to think. It's a bad thing to think. <laughs> but it's also everywhere. And so we it need to be there. proactive <laughs> in the exactly. way that we, we give that context back to these texts so that we know who we're sharing them with right. and why that's so important. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really important to, to understand that, you know, these texts existed long before Christianity uh, appeared uh, on the earth. You know, God has been working in other communities other than our own for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Amen. still is. And still Amen. is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've got I've got another sort of broad homiletical question about the passage like this. I, I wonder what you think, Deborah, about how much does the context of our congregation matter and what we do with a text like this? Like, I imagine it might be a bit different to preach a text uh, like this in a like a rural white church in Trump country versus preaching it in an urban black church versus some other context. Um, or maybe not. Maybe you sort of take what the text is giving you and you do the same thing. What What do you think about the context of the congregation and what that does with what we do with the text? Context always matters, right? Because it seems like if, if the theme of liberation is part of this text, we can't take for granted that just because it's a rural, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a rural white church, there are people who need to be liberated there as well from something. Mm-hmm. And maybe their the, mm-hmm. their need for liberation is a little bit different, uh, but there is something there, and so some of these people people in both contexts are asking the question: Does God hear their cry? Uh, does God hear that they can't get their unemployment with that? You know, it's supposed to be guaranteed by the government. It's just it's it's just not happening. Is God? hearing their cries, they work in meat packing plants and they see more and more people getting COVID-19 and they're just trying to earn a living for their families or, you know, so is that something they need to be liberated from? So understanding that Mm. the message of liberation is not just the purview of traditionally, uh, marginalized people that we, you know, we kind of know about, uh, um, very often, uh, you know, in, in rural white uh, uh, um, uh, context, um, there may be poverty, there may be all kinds of, you know, circumstances that people need to be delivered from. To speak to that is the preacher's task. 
So, Rachel, if you were going to um, craft a sermon based on this text, what sort of angle would you take? What would be your way into it? Well, as always happens on these conversations, I've got about six. So um, (laughs) I resonated strongly with this idea of God's body and what God's body senses in response to creation especially the suffering of creation, um, especially at our present moment, when suffering is such a, um, it's a word that I think almost everybody can identify with, whether you've had COVID, whether you know someone who's died from COVID, whether you are worried about the future of our, our world, you know, suffering is a potent question. And so this idea that God's body itself responds to suffering, um, could be a real word of comfort and liberation, um, And then lastly, I just love this idea of divine invitation of critique and leaning into that really uncomfortable tension of this story as a a way into the really uncomfortable tension we find ourselves in right now. And a sermon that focuses on, so how do we react to God and how do we um, speak to God out of that moment? Um, I think there's a lot of preaching, um, preaching fruit there to be had. So how about two of you? Well, I guess I would say uh, all of that is probably <laughs> what I would do. But um, for another angle, perhaps, one of the themes in this passage that is really powerful and kind of sticks out to me is the magnitude of the calling that mm-hmm. Moses receives in this text to be the one to lead God's people out. Mm-hmm. And I can so um, identify with his feelings of inadequacy. The mm-hmm. who am I to do this? You know, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm the wrong guy for the job and God's reassurance there in verse seven, the first response is no, 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 no. I will be with you. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, I am, I'm calling you to do this, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it's actually my identity says God. It's it's who I am. That is the decisive factor here. (laughs) And that makes the difference. And, um, so I think, I think that's, uh, for those of us who feel like the circumstances of the world that we're living in right now are overwhelming and we feel this sense of calling that we should be doing something, but ugh, what difference can we make? I'm just me. I'm not really qualified to change the world in this moment where the world needs changing. And I think God's voice comes through to us as well saying, no, 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 no. I am with you. That's what's important here. It's not your qualifications. It's my qualifications. So do what I've called you to do. I, I will be with you in it. I think that's a a very preachable, preachable point. I I think that's huge because it's easy to forget that in our very individualistic, you know, I must do all things kind of world. Uh, so because even though we we say, you know, we believe in God uh, very often, that does not mean that we put our faith in God and mm. that we actually mm. believe that God is going to be with us when God calls us. Right. So it's like, OK, yeah. so so we say, OK, I'll go. Uh, I, I'll answer the call and then start, you know, uh, tripping, you know, just because because we're we're, we're panicking because. Because we think we have to do it on our own. It's like, but, yeah. but wait, God called us. And that means that God will give us everything we need to do the job. Yeah. As long as we stay focused on what God is calling us to do, 
God's not going to leave us and abandon us uh, mm-hmm. when God called us. So it's like, okay, so, uh, okay, I got it. And so just to kind of remind ourselves of that, I think is, is really important. Yeah, especially because, you know, just a little bit later on in the chapter when Moses is protesting, oh. one of the things that God says is, what do you have in your hand right now? And it's <laughs> it's a stick, you know, it's a rod. And God's like, I can work with that, you know? It's like, what do you have in your hand right now? And God looks at it and says, I can work with that, yeah. you know? It's like, yeah. so that means just like, so whatever we are, whatever we bring to this task, yeah. God can work with that, apparently, yeah. because God called us, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. that's a, that's, that should be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We probably can't hear that sermon enough. Well, this was just wonderful. I, I know that I'll be sitting with this conversation for quite a while. So thank you so much, Dr. Mumford, for coming on. This is just a fantastic conversation. And I, I know that there's going to be lots of great sermons that come out of it. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, dear listeners, that's going to bring us to the end of our episode here. But it doesn't mean you have to leave First Reading behind. You can go to our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, and find all of our back episodes there, as well as links to the work of our esteemed guests. Uh, We also have a Facebook page now. You can find us on Facebook and interact with us there, so do check that out. And uh, let a friend know about the podcast so we can spread what we're doing out into the world here. Shout out to Blue Dot Sessions for some extra music this week. And thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Remember, whatever you've got, God can work with it.